The Big Light presents Hello, I'm Sean McDonald. You're listening to Pleathered, and my guest is Ross Greer. Ross is a member of Scottish Parliament and is the youngest ever MSP after being elected as the West Scotland representative for the Green Party in 2016. We talk about behind the scenes at the Scottish Parliament and every day goings on, including seeing Nicola Sturgeon buying a meal deal in Tesco. Ross talks me through his highly publicised clash with Good Morning Britain anchor Piers Morgan after he challenged people's perceptions of Winston Churchill. And we discuss Ross's political experiences today, including an unlikely friendliness between him and former Tory leader Jackson Carlaw. Leathered is written, recorded and produced by me and me only and has grown through word of mouth. So if you enjoy this episode, then feel free to share it because it's a great help. Cheers. So Ross, you were elected at the age of 21 years old, making you Scotland's youngest MSP. Has that been a help or a hindrance? I think it's been both, to be honest. Like... The the election of 2016 wasn't particularly interesting all round. And a lot of journalists the next day when they were looking to figure out how they covered it, what they wrote about it, um, they found me as the kind of what they called like the colour story. So not the kind of headline position of all the parties, but this kind of interesting personal story mm-hmm. uh, thing. I, I kind of think that's partly because there wasn't a huge, else, uh, a huge amount else going on, but it, it was nice. What that allowed me to do was to to use this like extra platform that I'd got. I had this extra platform not because I was a green MSP or I was an MSP for the West of Scotland. I had this extra platform because I was the youngest person who'd ever been elected to the parliament. Um, and I could use that to talk about the issues that I was elected to talk about. So it was an advantage mm-hmm. from that perspective. You just get invited to more places to, to do more stuff. And that's great. Um, as long as you use it to advance the agenda you told your constituents uh, you mm-hmm. were going to. The, the flip side of it is um, people definitely tried, um, some in a totally well-intentioned way and others in a very deliberately not well-intentioned way to like depoliticize me. It was mm-hmm. much easier for some people to deal with me as the young MSP rather than the green MSP for the West of Scotland, particularly for folk who really disagree with my politics and maybe come from a much more conservative point of view it was easier to think of oh ross ross is the msp who like tell us how snapchat works and tell us Mm. how we can connect with young people rather than well actually no ross is elected on a party manifesto about radical transformation and that's what he's that's what he's here to do so it's about trying to balance those two things for me like take full advantage of this extra platform i've got this kind of wee footnote in history that i've become and take full advantage Mm. of that um, but make sure that I wasn't being invited onto all these other platforms in a way that would like neutralise what I was really there to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a there's a slight danger of becoming a sort of gimmick and not actually being able to just say execute what you're you're there to do. Have you found? I don't want to draw. It's it's a it is a lazy comparison, but it's an obvious comparison with you and Mary Black, one of the 
I, I don't. Is she actually still the youngest ever MP? I think maybe she's lost that title recently. I might be wrong. Um, but one of the things that's leveled at her is sometimes she's she takes a lot of pish, to be honest. Um, against her politics are you could describe them as being divisive, which is what some people will point to and say, no, 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 no. It's because she's she's so outspoken or whatever. But no, there is an element of her being young, being working class. Do you ever feel like you're sort of looked down upon when when you're in Holyrood or whatever? Or are people on the, the most part respectful and engaging? It's interesting. I mean, I, I don't think divisive politics is, is a bad thing for a start Politics is where no, we come together to to debate really important issues. And yeah. sometimes on a lot of those issues and on the most important issues, there isn't a compromise. There's no consensus. You have to have a really robust debate and it's up to the public to decide who's right. Wh- whichever group of us is elected in the largest number is the one that the public have said, you have a mandate to do your particular vision. But there's not compromise on issues like you know, Brexit or independence or, or whatever. Or feeding um, hungry school children. I don't think there's a middle ground there. Well, exactly. Yeah, you either do it or you don't. Um, yeah. And uh, we know what kind of people don't want to do that. Um, but I think for folk like Mary or myself, and I mean, we're almost exactly the same age, like Mary's like three months younger than me or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we, yeah, we represent kinds of politics that are that bit more radical and, and inherently are a bit more divisive. That's how some people would describe them. We definitely definitely get accused of being more divisive than someone with exactly the same politics who's older than us mm-hmm. would have because there are folk out there who just see the fact that it's young people advancing this cause that that somehow makes it less legitimate that we have less of a right to be there to be talking about these things and just inherent to the fact that it's us doing it it, it's somehow worse and, and and they don't consider it to be a, a legitimate area of debate. I mean, I had um, a, probably, it was very early on in Parliament, I think it was maybe a year in, so probably 2017, there was a debate in the Scottish Parliament of World Refugee Day, um, an issue that I care really passionately about. I'd actually not on before that debate uh, been out in Southern Europe uh, with uh, my church. It was a, a grouping of churches from across the UK. I was the Church of Scotland, we went out, and we were meeting with our partner bodies who do a lot of work with refugees and meeting with refugees themselves. I'd literally met with folk who had just came off of, I mean, you'd call it a boat, but the, the vessels that they were journeying oh, across the Mediterranean on were, yeah, I mean, it, you know, massive bits of cardboard, basically. I was meeting people mm. whose friends had died in the hours previous to it, who'd, who'd drowned in, in the Med. So I feel really passionate about that debate, and I gave a speech that was very passionate. What annoyed me about it was um, the Tories had come into that debate um, acting as if there was some kind of broad consensus that we all agreed that refugees were welcome and that we should do more to welcome them. What irritated me, or more than irritated me, what got me angry about that was I had just been to the Southern Med to see how the result of the policies of the UK government and lots of other European governments were directly resulting in the deaths of refugees in the Mediterranean. So that's the speech that I gave. I said, you know, you've come here pretending that you're part of this consensus, but you're not. I mean, you're all card-carrying members of a party who will not set up safe passages for these people whose interventions in other countries cause people to become refugees in the first place. And in debates in the Scottish Parliament, you can get up and you can intervene on each other. And that's kind of a broad understanding is we all take a couple of interventions in our speeches and it makes it for a better debate. Instead of any of the Tories getting up and asking if they could intervene on me to ask a question, make a point, whatever, which I would have taken... um, all I heard from across the chamber was the Tory MSP shouting at me, eh, silly boy, silly boy, just a silly boy. 
had absolutely no comeback to the point of substance I was making. And in the end, the Tories lost that debate. Mm -hmm. uh, what I was proposing was passed. What they were proposing was rejected. Um, but it was really telling because what he couldn't deal with was the fact that I, as a young person, was directly criticising their record, was showing up the hypocrisy of what they were talking about. And instead of coming back to it, instead of actually having a debate with me on the topic, what he focused on was the fact that uh, it was somehow illegitimate that I was making the point because mm -hmm. I was like too young that I somehow didn't understand. Um, and mm -hmm. I mean, frankly, like I know there were, there were a lot of other MSPs who got really offended and angry on my behalf about that. I thought it was really funny. I felt completely vindicated because all it showed me was he couldn't deal with the substance of the argument I was making. He ended up losing the, the debate. If the strongest comeback he had was to shout about my age, mm -hmm. like... It, it didn't really have much of a comeback at all. It was it was just quite funny. I Tragic, think there's a but funny. Yeah, there is a quote, and I, I think it's been wrongly attributed to Socrates. Um, I'm actually not sure who said it, but he said when a debate is lost, slander becomes a tool of the losers. And while that might not be slanderous, let's say, in, resorting to insults or, or some petty wee thing, because you see, if there was anything of substance or any rebuttal or retort that had any weight or credibility whatsoever, you can you can you, know, you best believe it would have been shouted. The, the and I don't mean this in a patronising way because we're we're more or less the same age. But do you feel that there is is there a difference? Did you go in with like a? I'm trying to choose my words carefully because once it's out, it's out. Let's say like a naivety or a or a youthful exuberance, or sort of going in all guns blazing. Has that tailed off a wee bit, or have you have you learned to? Or have you tempered that? I'm not saying that you ever were, but I just imagine if I was 21 and in Holyrood and some Tory MSP said that to me, I think I would probably lean into the mic and say, who the fuck are you talking to, mate? And, and, and as I get older, I realise, wait a minute, there's, there's better ways to kind of do things. Have you had that shift or have you just always kind of had the same approach? I have spent the last five years now since I got elected constantly worrying that I was going to start like mellowing uh, or even worse selling out mellowing um, is I, a great is a great way to put it I... that well that's the politest way to put it I think selling out is the thing that I'm actually really worried <laughs> worried about that I've just become like institutionalized in the parliament uh, and yeah. I you know I came in as someone with like you know I'm quite sure my opponents would describe it as like revolutionary zeal and they wouldn't be totally wrong like yeah I came in as someone who wants to see like radical massive change who wants to overthrow you know political and economic elites across these islands and, and the world and I don't want to lose that uh, but mm. that you know revolutions really start from inside parliament um and but what I can do inside parliament is I can make things a little bit better day by day um I, I don't I don't want one of those to start winning out over the other and for me to take that well-trodden journey from like radical leftist towards <clears throat> kind of like centrist small c conservative type ha um, happy to be taking your expenses and all that kind of thing I, like. exactly like and I, I constantly have to check myself on that and think right am i is, is that what's happening um i don't th think so i think what has actually happened is i've i've got better at kind of like playing the game to my advantage in Parliament, which is no bad thing. Like you say, oh, I've got better at playing the game. Well, a lot of people mm -hmm. don't like that game. Um, but like I'm playing it with objectives in mind that are about tangi tangibly improving people's lives and, and, and protecting the planet. Yeah. And if, if this is one of the ways I have to do it, 
uh, then you know that's that's what I've volunteered to to do. That doesn't mean that all the kind of movement politics that happens outside that I've said you know that's that's not what's important anymore. No, this this is just my role in a much wider movement. I think the thing that I went into Parliament with much more uh, was rather than naivety, it was like an insecurity. Um, I, I felt like really really self conscious about the fact that I was going to have to to prove myself to to prove that I had like a, a legitimate right to be there. I mean, obviously everyone who's there has been voted. Everyone's got the same mandate. Um, but I had this thing of thinking like, God, almost everyone here is going to be so much smarter than me. They're going to know so much more about public policy than me. They're going to so, know so much more about parliamentary processes mm-hmm. uh, than me. Actually, like that, that didn't turn out to be the case, not because I turned out to be some mastermind of policy knowledge that I didn't know I had. Um, but I mean, for a start, there were 40 other new MSPs at the same time as me, a third of the parliament were new at that point. Um, but also, like, I I mean, I'd been working in politics for a couple of years at that point. I'd worked for the Yes campaign. I'd, uh, I'd, I'd worked for my party. I'd like done a lot of campaigning. So I'd spent a lot of time going into the Scottish parliament to lobby MSPs on behalf of mm-hmm. whatever campaign I was, I was working on, things like Votes at 16. Um, I didn't, I didn't have the lack of knowledge that I thought I had, but also uh, uh, one thing that we're not very good about talking about in, in politics in this country is parliaments are not expert bodies. Like we are, we're lay bodies. We are elected by the public at large. Um, we are advised by experts. We are not ourselves the experts. Uh, that's that's not the system of governance that we've got. Democracies are not systems where you you pick experts. They're where you pick people who match your values or who who you think have the right experience. Like Mm. people can vote on whatever basis they want. Um, Like I I don't need to be an expert in the fields that I'm working in in parliament. The point is the experts are there to support us. We're the ones who make decisions on behalf of the people who've elected us because we're the only people with a mandate to go and do that. Mm -hmm. Once I kind of realized all that, I I think I definitely got much more relaxed about it. For for a, a good couple of months, there was this constant feeling of like, are these people even taking me seriously? And to be fair, with the exception of a couple of, of Tory MSPs, um, I, I have never felt I've had an issue with other MSPs from, from other parties not taking me seriously. I, I have absolutely been treated with, with respect uh, mm-hmm. by them, by plenty of other people, not so much outside. I mean, obviously, there's all the crap that you get on social media, uh, by kind of political commentators and stuff as well. There's, there's definitely a kind of dismissive tone. But I've I certainly, I, I've been able to get a lot done in Parliament because other MSPs have taken me just as seriously as anyone else. Um, mm-hmm. So I've, I've got no complaints about that anyway. Before I, I've got a couple of questions I want to ask, but one that's just popped into my head is people don't actually, you know, I've, I've been to Westminster like twice, three times, um, and you get to see the sort of inner workings or the behind the scenes. I found it very interesting. I've been to Holyrood once, when I was at college, when I was eighteen, and again, you're actually kind of taken aback by, oh, this is a, this is a functioning organisation as such. It's not just the chamber. What I mean, what kind of thing? This is kind of putting you on the spot and asking you to come up with something entertaining. But I mean, what would you, how would you describe a typical day? You know, going into going through Edinburgh because you know. I, I've totally made a complete arse of this question because I'm not trying to show what I'm trying to get out. Do you know what I mean? By by saying, like, I don't know, coming in the front door, I mean, will you bump into Nicola Sturgeon sitting in the cafe having a coffee and be like, all right, mate, what's happening? Or, or, or I don't know, John Swinney or, or anybody else. What's that like? 
Yeah, it's funny. Like once you get elected and you spend more time in there, and as I said, I'd I'd spent a wee bit of time in in the parliament before, but not as someone who worked there. Like what you come to realize really quickly is it's actually like a really normal place of work. So Mm -hmm. like we do in like actual capital P politics. At the same time, like as a normal like office building, you've got plenty of office politics that that goes on as well. Um, the you know the the dynamic in the Scottish Parliament is actually really nice. It feels quite normal, quite relaxed. I've never worked at Westminster, but I've been there a couple of times and it just doesn't it doesn't feel the, the same. There feels like there's like sharper divides there. There's places that you are and are not supposed to be and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And only only certain kinds of people get taken more seriously. Uh, Holden's not perfect. It just it, it doesn't really feel like that. Um like the, the the one thing that unites absolutely everyone in Scottish politics or everyone in the parliament uh, is the canteen. Uh, and the canteen staff, like what an absolutely brilliant bunch of people. Uh, I guarantee you that the quality of law produced in Scotland over the last 21 years would be a lot worse if it wasn't for the canteen staff in the Scottish <laughs> Parliament, like uh, the, the like emotional support that they, they provide uh, as well as the, the food. But like, I mean, the, the mac and cheese in the Scottish Parliament is the one thing that you'll find absolute uh, consensus on, which is nice. And yeah, like, there's folk who it always strikes me when you bring guests and stuff in and and you do see you know if john swinney's standing in the queue to get a coffee or something like that and like, oh or brian taylor from the bbc people used to always like be stunned and turn their head back when when they saw uh brian wandering about <laughs> but yeah like this is your normal place of work these are people that you see every day yeah. uh, and then you remember when you bring a guest in that actually the only time most people see these folk is is on tv so it's like much more of a of a novelty for them and it's nice in that respect. Like it, we are massively privileged to to do, do the job we're doing. Uh, don't get me wrong, uh, but it feels when you're in there and, and doing that, it just it feels much more normal. The the bit that's not normal is like, when you're in the chamber, or sometimes when you're in the committees and stuff like that. Especially the chamber. The chamber feels like theatre, or probably more accurately, pantomime most mm-hmm. of the time. Um, like a, a lot of the stuff that kind of goes on around that, like it is just much more casual and and friendly and it's funny because i think some folk are reluctant to talk about that because uh, i think there's a lot of people out there who don't like the idea that politicians are all actually friends like simultaneously we're told why can't you all just get along but then there's the idea of like the chumocracy and actually mm-hmm. people are really unhappy when it turns out these folk are all like yelling at each other in the chamber and then going for a coffee outside i think like yeah like, there's a line that i'll draw and there are some people that because of their values, I absolutely won't have anything to do with. But like on the whole, I'm in the building with these people when we are in the building. I was there with them most days. You you go on trips together where you spend a hell of a lot of time together. Like I can't be bothered um, with the, the hassle of there being a huge list of people that I won't speak to because I disagree with on stuff. Like mm-hmm. it's not going to help me advance all the causes that I actually believe in if there's a big long list of folk I won't speak to. And most other folk are the same. You actually find the Scottish Parliament, the people who won't speak to each other are generally all in the Labour group. It's all Labour MSPs and it's all, all right. like, massive personality stuff. Like politicians from parties will speak to each other and chat to each other and pretty relaxed about that. The, the one kind of exception is the the canteen is a little bit, it's, it's got the dynamics of like a high school canteen. Everyone definitely sits in groups. And I'm not going to say cliques, but um, I think it would probably be healthier if we all, like MSPs and staff, all mixed a bit more, whereas there's like 
the the area where the green MSPs and staff always sit. The, the there's an area where most MSPs and staff always sit. There's an area where there's a kind of group of like, SNP folk who've been there since like '99, including a lot of government mm-hmm. ministers. Usually, where they're set, where the Tories sit, etc. Probably better if we mixed a little bit more because that's the bit that you get like heavy high school vibes from it when you go into the canteen <laughs> and you you see where every group is sitting around the room. I'm imagining somebody in like their first day and walking into the canteen and like holding their train. You know, Nicola Sturgeon and her pals are sitting in one corner and Ruth Davidson and her pals are sitting in another. Or is she not a baroness now? So she'll be away, won't she? She'll try to conceal that and hide that. Um, yeah, you, you kind of, you summed it up well. I had a disorientated and confused rambling as I was trying to ask, what is the di- the dynamic of the building like? And it's funny to hear that because like, as you pointed out, you only really see these people on TV and you see the divides and you see them shouting at each other, but you do forget that human nature prevails and while you may be, um, I don't know, in terms of policy, completely diametrically opposed to somebody, if it's something like refuse collection or the allocation of uh, spending for the NHS, those are very normal things to disagree on and get passionate about, but then walk out and go, right, again, human nature prevails. We are normal people. There is more that separates us. Uh, sorry, there is more that unites us than divides us, and we're not going to be completely at each other's throats because we are in disagreement about, I don't know, something to do with education. When it comes down to the more serious things, when it's people's lives and things like that, I think it's it's completely justified and actually expected that you don't particularly mix with those people because if those are fundamental values, like if somebody in my work, or well, I'm self-employed, if somebody in this office space and self-employed, I mean, I don't, then don't have anybody I work with. If somebody in this office space was chatting with me and was to say something like, I don't know, I I mean, fuck those immigrants, like, I, I'm buzzing when they drown. While somebody in the parliament might not say that, kind of, that's what I hear. Like, <laughs> if they're saying they're not bothered, I'm like, mm, tomato, tomato, mate. You kind of, they both mean the same thing, just one is, is said in a, in a cruder way. Uh, so it is, it is so interesting to, to imagine that, the dynamics of, I, I'm trying to think of other who else is in Parliament for sake. Gene Freeman coming back with a subway or something like that. Like these <laughs> these sort of mundane things that you wouldn't normally attribute to someone who you view as such a formal um what's the word? Professional or, or powerful, influential thing. It's it's funny to imagine those things. It, it's quite jarring to your what you what you sort of expect of them. I mean, I remember one time being, this was before I was elected, back, back when I worked for the S campaign. I remember being in, I can't remember if it was a Tesco or a Marks and Spencers, but I was in a supermarket uh, with Nicola and a, a, and a couple of her staff. And um, it, it was it's so funny watching folks' heads turn because like when a politician's out and about doing like a photo op or whatever, like, yeah, there's attention on them and, and the public are turning around and going, oh, look, look at who that is. But like, it's deliberate. You're out in public for a deliberate reason. Uh, whereas, like, it was really funny just be, <laughs> being in being in Tesco with uh, Nicola when she was getting like her meal deal for lunch, and just the reaction of folk roundabout because it's just not a setting that they can quite comprehend seeing her in. Like, <laughs> yeah. she's not there to shake hands with people and get her photo taken. There's not a TV crew with her. Like, she's just being a person, Aye. and that's like folk find that really jarring. It's it, it's quite funny that. That is funny. My head would sw- swivel off my neck. I'd be like, what the hell? Do you know what else I find mental? And I want to bring this up and I want to know if other people agree with me. So recently I was like, hold on a minute. Where does Nicola Sturgeon live? And I was like, surely she lives at Butte House. And it turns out 
she doesn't. She just lives in a normal street. Now, can you imagine? I'm kind of flitting around. Imagine like you just lived in a normal street and Boris Johnson stayed next door to you. Or, or any British Prime Minister, you'd be like, what the fuck? Are you not meant to be in a pure armed house? Like, how can you, like, she's got a conservatory. Like, I just find that hilarious and it just doesn't seem right. Like, how that's, I just I just find that absolutely mental. That may be yeah, normal. If to other you're people. inside Butte House, though, you, you'd understand why folk don't want to live there. Like, what's it like? The, uh, this, this state of Butte House and this, it's really weird. So, like, formally, that's the residence of the First Minister. So, she, and... she could technically, like, move her three piece suite in there and stuff, and, and that's it. She's, she's entitled to that. Yeah, and I, she probably does stay there sometimes where it's just like too late to go back through to, to Glasgow at night. But yeah, like, I, the, uh, I bet the roof fell in on Butte House not that long ago. Like, it's not the best kept building in the world. And it's very, even like the decoration stuff, it's very, very old. Mm. It's like like properly posh old kind of like manor house type thing just because bits of it haven't been redecorated in so long. And occasionally you want that kind of, super formal setting with portraits on the wall when you've been mm-hmm. visiting dignitaries but now nah, i mean i've only been in there a couple of times i thought it, it, it would feel to me like living in a haunted house i don't even know where it is it's in edinburgh somewhere i'm just googling it oh right i think it's charlotte square i think that's, that's oh the right okay it is charlotte square you're right well for anybody who's unaware charlotte square is probably one of the most prestigious addresses or areas in in uh, scotland Right, that's interesting. I never knew who that was. Honestly, I thought it was a country house somewhere, so that shows how much I knew. Um, to go back to you, even from 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 the age of 15, 16, I would call myself politically engaged, politically aware, politically interested, certainly not apathetic, not dismissive. However, if you were to say to me at 21, do you want to be an M- MSP or want to be an MP? I think my genuine response would be, fuck that. No, it just doesn't seem something, I don't want to say unbecoming of a 21-year-old, that's not, it just doesn't seem common, or it's not, you'd be like, no, that's that's for other people. What what pushed you to do that? I mean, I know you were involved, you had a successfully, you successfully usurped the, was it the Eco Committee when you were in third year? <laughs> yeah, my school, yeah. So, so, so you've obviously, there is a political awareness and engagement um, and an understanding of how, things work has were you did you always see yourself going down that that route i know that seems like a very straightforward copy and paste generic question but i think it is very applicable because nobody else has done it you know so so how <laughs> how and why i i mean i think the, the eco committee thing maybe planted the seeds of it so i uh i was on the the eco committee at my school which is like such a stereotype um and you know for, for a reason here um i got to like third year on that eco committee and I ended up, I just lost my patience. I got so pissed off with the sixth year pupils who were supposed to be in charge of it and never turned mm-hmm. up. Uh, so in my first like politically Machiavellian move, I just, I knew that they wouldn't turn up or they wouldn't turn up in big enough numbers. So I just stacked the meeting and organized a coup and I took over the eco committee. <laughs> um, but I don't think that's what probably started the, the path. The chip on my shoulder would be, I then spent three years running that school's eco committee, ticked every box to get the, the green flag for the school. But the uh, teacher who was uh, formally in charge of it really, really didn't like me. So never bothered submitting for the green flag. So for three years, I did all the work, like what we Mm -hmm. should have got three in a row uh, for that or however it worked. And we never got it. So the fact that I managed to leave school not getting a green flag is probably the chip on my shoulder that led me uh, into (laughs) doing all this. Um, But like 
more seriously though i i think i'm definitely impatient like the idea of waiting and doing something else with my life for a while and then going back and and doing it never never quite uh, quite sat right with me for for a bunch of different reasons i mean for a start like one of the reasons i'm in politics the reason that i started getting involved in politics is the climate crisis mm. we've only got 10 years left to do something about that before we hit the tipping point like the, the next 10 years are what everyone in politics is going to be judged on like in 20 30 40 years time this is the final window that we've got mm. um and like if if someone's going to be assessing my record in 40 years time I, again as one of those minor footnotes in history um I want it to at least look like I, I tried. Uh, mm. I really want us to win and to turn turn the ship around on the climate crisis, but um, I at least want to be able to feel like I, I did what I could to to stop that. Um, and there was a kind of general frustration, like I was in the youth parliament, uh, I led on the campaign for, for votes at 16, so I've always felt young people should be more involved and, and, and are capable of making good decisions when, when you empower them to do it. Uh, but there was a kind of general frustration of, not like I didn't have this like antipathy towards MSPs in particular, but just this general sense that you had <clears throat> a, a political class at large who didn't look or sound like my generation, and mm-hmm. like the the kind of like the unique experiences of this generation in terms of like precarious work, zero's contracts, uh, like the the situation with housing now is just completely different to what it was before. So many friends who've gone to uni, graduated, and got a degree in what they thought would be a really clear career path and um, that's not happened they're still or they were still working in like bars restaurants that kind of thing obviously mm. not at the moment um and they're still stuck in private rented accommodation the rent's going up they can't save for the mortgage like the idea of like the kind of like moving on to the next phase of their life that a lot of people had mm-hmm. less and less people are able to do that um and just stuff like that i just wasn't seeing the the recognition of it and thought look i could continue doing what I'm doing, which is just getting angry about all that. And I could continue campaigning on the outside, which which I enjoyed. And, and we had some success doing that. I thought, like, I, I don't just want to be on what I think is the right side of all this stuff. I want to get something done about it. And, like, clearly somewhere that you can get a lot of it done, not all of it, but we can get a lot of it done is if you're actually inside Parliament. Mm-hmm. I thought, yeah, like, if I, if I feel passionate enough about this stuff, like, I kind of felt like I had a responsibility to at least put myself forward and say, you know, I I spend a lot of my time telling MSPs what I think they should be doing. Maybe it's my time to stand up and, and see whether there are folk out there who think that I should be I should be one of them instead. Mm-hmm. There, there are obviously, as you pointed out, a lot of people that will be um, completely oppositional to where you stand uh, in terms of politically and, and whatever like in the political spectrum but i I would imagine surely most people would be able to to have a lot of respect for that the fact that we can all i mean i've certainly done it like in terms of i don't want to say grandstanding but very vocal vociferous in my opinion and be like here's what should happen but not once have i ever said well okay i'll get involved then so i think it's one thing to 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 say what you think should be happening but to then actually go to put yourself forward and put yourself in that position to actually go and influence that change, I think it's something that it's worthy of a lot of respect. Um, is I got it... a really interesting message about that. Actually, the the day after the election, when when the results were announced, um, I had an exchange of messages with Jackson Carla, who um, right. Tory MSP since then became Tory leader, now no longer Tory leader, um, where. Uh, Jackson actually just sent me a message to congratulate me because he'd, he'd met me at a bunch of hustings and he knew me from 
campaigns that I'd lobbied him on with very little success. Um, and he'd sent me this this message of congratulations because he'd said, you know, fundamentally disagrees with what I believe in, but he really respected the fact that I stood up. And in some cases, in some of the hustings that we did with a really, really hostile audience who really disagreed with what I was saying. Um, and I was just totally open and honest and straightforward about it. And he's like, well, I, I think I think he actually said um, that he thought some of my ideas were bordering on dangerous, but... <laughs> Uh, he respected the fact that I was I was honest and straightforward about them, and I let people question me about it. Mm-hmm. Um, in that particular case, I think he was talking about um, Israel and Palestine, uh, which is uh, a wee bit out with the remit of the Scottish Parliament. We can do a little bit on it, and I do actually yeah. co-chair the cross-party group on Palestine. Uh, but yeah, Jackson and I disagree on almost everything, um, but we ended up being on a committee together um, for the first couple of years. And if you want to get anything done, like there's no point in just refusing to speak to to people. Like again, Absolutely. you draw a line somewhere uh, that there are some folk I'd be desperately uncomfortable speaking to. And if you know, if the likes of UKIP or, or what uh, whatever Farage's new outfit has got elected, I don't think I could speak to them. Uh, but with with someone like Jackson, like yeah, like we we really disagree. I remember talking about the, the disagreement. He was he was saying because it kind of surprised him. At one point, he was saying like it kind of surprised him how how like civil I was being. You know, chatty and, and relaxed mm-hmm. and stuff because of how much we disagreed and he was comparing it to some of my colleagues that are maybe I think a little bit less civil with him um, I was saying well yeah I mean it's not just that we disagree I mean I, I really do believe I feel I know the evidence is there like your policies kill people your policies kill working class people your policies kill disabled mm-hmm. people they kill refugees etc um, but I, I can do something about it in here if I play this game, build alliances where I can, etc. Whereas if if I was just purely oppositional, if I was just a kind of burn it all down, you're all bastards all the time, mm-hmm. I'm not actually helping any of those groups of people that I've just mentioned. So yeah, it's kind of weird and uncomfortable sometimes. And other mm-hmm. times, you just need to get on with it. I never thought I would be coming into this conversation and feeling an element or, or a sensation of warmth towards a former Tory leader. But here, there you go. Because that is that is really nice to hear. Um, one one of the things I've been getting really frustrated with, and I suppose everybody's been getting really frustrated with, is the constant like my instinct is to swear because it gets me so angry. So I just will the constant fucking refusal to cooperate and instead to obstruct each other in politics in general as a point of because because what is it? It's identity politics. Now we're just going to be completely oppositional and opposed to what you're saying because you want this or we want that. I think the best example of a sort of then and now is you look at the Trump administration, you know, the with the you know, the Republicans, the sort of aim seemed to be to be as obstructive as possible and to prevent the Democrats from doing anything because this is a game and if you win, we lose, so on. And then I looked at when I think when fuck you, would that have been Mike Pence went up against Barack Obama in two thousand and eight, didn't he? Uh, John McCain. John McCain, sorry. John McCain, and I looked, I, I watched his concession speech, and there was like, I'm not going to say I was getting emotional, right, because I wasn't, because it's American politics, but there was a bit of me that was like, oh my God, we've not seen anything so so respectful and so dignified in such a long time. Then I read about uh, the quotes from what George Bush Sr. said when it came to the handover of power to Bill Clinton's administration. And he basically was like, politics 
uh, in the in America is not about winning or losing. It's about finding the most acceptable middle ground for everybody, because by and large it is fifty fifty. So no one party is going to have exactly what they want. You know, it's about doing the best for the American people. And he's talking about we're going to do everything that we can to ensure the smoothest handover of power. And you're like, bloody hell, man, you compare that to the dynamic here. I mean, I won't make any direct comparisons, but people can make their own. And it's like, you know, you're never going to achieve anything if everybody's at loggerheads. So that's why he... That's the ridiculous thing, especially in in this session right now in the Scottish Parliament, the SNP don't have a majority. So any other opposition party could get some of its agenda through Mm. by either working with the government or playing all the other opposition parties off against the government. Um, But what you instead get is, I think the Greens try and do that. And obviously we've negotiated budgets with them and, you know, like free bus travel for under 19s. That'll come in later this year because we negotiated it in a budget. That's excellent. There are, there are some folk who flat out refuse, completely flat out refuse uh, to try and negotiate and compromise on stuff like the budget. Um, in this case, basically you've got a, a pro-independence government, three anti-independence parties and Tories Labour and Lib Dems who just completely refused to do budget negotiations with them because of an issue that's utterly unrelated to the budget, independence. Mm. What that means is they're all going to go into the next election. Voters will say, well, it was a minority government. What did you achieve? What did you force them to do? Well, actually not very much of anything because they're not trying. Like, yeah, there are absolutely places where you need to draw the line. There are places where you shouldn't compromise, like human rights, like... uh, we didn't compromise on the issue of equal marriage for same-sex couples by saying, oh, well, civil, par- civil partnerships, that's enough. That's given that's given something, and it's kept the people who believe in traditional marriage happy because that's been preserved. No, like, everyone deserves equal rights. So you, you, you draw a line there. There's not a compromise. So win or lose, and equality won in that situation. Something like the budget, like, the Greens have been able to advance a big chunk of our agenda, not everything that we wanted. The budgets aren't green budgets. We've not written them, but they're mm. a lot greener than they otherwise would have been. And they, they have made people's lives better than they would have been because we thought, well, like we have a responsibility to try. Whereas what you're talking about, like that kind of pure oppositional politics, it doesn't, not only does it not advance your agenda at all, but it's not worked for any of these parties. Like the SNP are clearly going to win the next election. Like the Tories, Labour and the Lib Dems, like strategy of pure opposition, it hasn't made the SNP less popular. It hasn't made yeah. independence less popular. It's not made them any more popular and it's not helped anyone. So like, what's the point? <laughs> Do you just really hate them that much? Like I really, really don't like some of the stuff that they do and there are areas that we just don't vote for it and we will oppose it and we will fight hard against it. There are other areas where, th- yeah, like I can make this tangibly better. But the last year's exam results fiasco was the, the classic example of that. Oh, where shambles. I'd, I'd spent like five months warning, this is going to screw over working class young people. You're grading them by their postcode, not by their ability, blah, blah, blah. The government just ignored it. Um, and that's what played out. Um, the strategy of the other opposition parties wasn't to reverse those grades. It wasn't to fix the grades. It was to force John Swinney to resign. Um, we were the only ones who even bothered negotiating with the government to say, right, how do we fix this? You're kind of over, like you're you're stuck here. You're in a really difficult position. Mm. John Swinney might be forced to resign here. Our only priority is to get these grades fixed for these young people. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I laid out four demands to the government. So here are the four things that you need to do. Otherwise, we'll be voting with the other opposition parties in the vote of no confidence. Mm. And that's exactly what happened. All four of them were met 
75,000 young people got their grades restored to what they should have deserved. No other opposition party even spoke to the government to try and negotiate anything. I felt like, why are you here? Like, that is everything people hate about politics. You were more interested in getting a scalp. You were more interested in causing a casualty to the other team than you were to fixing the problem that these young people now have landed in their laps through no fault of their own. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's where I start getting into pure rage territory when you, that that exactly is it. You're more interested in getting a scalp than actually rectifying the situation. So what you're there to do is to tear down, to be destructive. You're not there to cooperate, to build, to, to work together. It, it's deeply frustrating on that thing with the with the exam results i felt really strongly about that even though i, I don't i didn't know anybody who'd sat any exams it had been years since i'd done mine but there was just a, something that struck me and i'm actually not even digging out the young people who were on the receiving end of the benefit of the doubt let's say who got the higher grades because they didn't choose to be born there they didn't choose to be sent to that school that's not really their fault. But what it did make me think is something clicked in my brain and I thought back to all the... I'll choose my words carefully. I've met a lot of um, cerebrally challenged people who came from very well-to-do backgrounds. And I used to think, where the fuck do you get that confidence from, man? Because you're dim. You are dim. You do not. You lack both intelligence and common sense. Where do you get that bluster from? How are you, and I seem to be advancing through life so well. For the and British just... government's the ultimate example of that. Like oh, you've got absolutely. a British government of like upper class elites who led the most ridiculously sheltered bubble life, went to Eton, went to Oxford, get into government. These are people who can only fail up. Like they're not yeah, actually I... allowed to fail in life. Exactly. Like, You'll just Boris be... Johnson has been sacked multiple times. He was sacked from a newspaper because he lied as a journalist. He's now the prime minister. He is like recorded as organising to have a man assaulted. Yeah, and he's now the prime minister. Like you're right. There's a there's a class of people. Like the, the further up the kind of class hierarchy you go, the harder it is to fail in That's life, it. regardless I, of how wildly unsuited you are to have any responsibility. With with those people that I, that I'd encountered that exam thing, just it just clicked into place. And it obviously already you already knew that, right? If you ask me to define that. Why are people like that doing so well? Why are they continuing to advance through life? I could have defined it, but perhaps not fully related to it or understood it. And it was just in that moment and I was like, ah, it's just because you come from there and you're always going to get a leg up. You're always going to be done a favour. the designed that way. Like uh, that's the, the reason that like I spent months trying to, trying to stop it and I didn't succeed in stopping it, but when it happened, I at least managed to get it fixed. Mm-hmm. Um, but for months... The reason that the the government wouldn't listen to to the Greens or to the like the tra- teachers unions were saying exactly the same thing as us was all ac- academics saying the same thing, is because their priority was the integrity of the system. They they designed a, an algorithm for the grades that was about making the whole system look like any previous year, and um, but. The system isn't actually designed to treat every young person fairly. Basically, we've got an education system in Scotland where only a certain number of young people can get an A every year, only a certain number of young people can get a B, etc. And it is, it's designed so that that skews up, that there are going to be a lot more A grades in Bears Den than in Drumchapel. Mm. And, and we know that's directly related to the, the socioeconomic differences between those two communities. The idea that working class young people might get graded similarly to far, far more privileged young people in middle-class areas 
that was seen as bringing the quest, like the integrity of the whole system into question. And mm-hmm. if you've got a system that apparently lacks integrity, if working class young people achieve the same as like upper middle class young people, that's the problem you've got. Like this isn't just people's attitudes, so they're a big part of it. We have a system, not just in education, across the board, in our economy, society at large. All of these systems are predicated in this idea that it's not really credible for some people to achieve, is it? Mm. Or not not for that many of them. Like you can have your your one or two uh, shining success stories of a working class person that has pulled themselves up into, into a better life. But what you can't have is the working class as a whole achieving more. That's not credible, is it? And that, that was why they resisted. The, the idea that you could get uh, far more A grades at a, a school in somewhere like Chapel uh, or Easter House, if you ask the teachers, based on your professional judgment, how capable are these young people? I thought, no, that, that can't possibly be right. They can't possibly mm. achieve like that. And it's people who didn't get into politics because they support that, but who n- now find that like that's what we've got with this, with this government, the SNP, that they have to defend the system. They're mm. not interested in actually saying... No, the whole thing's, it's not broken. It's designed to be deliberately unequal yeah. and therefore we need to tear it down. I think I became so impassioned about it because I basically was like, you're talking about me. You're talking about, you're literally, you're categorising me with them as well. And maybe there might be my own selfish reasons or my own personal defence. I don't know. I didn't really, I just instinctively was raging and wanted to sort of back them up because I would be, I would be classed as those those underachievers. The funny thing is, I didn't actually do particularly well at school, but I don't think my high school grades are completely reflective and indicative of my entire intelligence as a whole. But I just I took that quite personally, I think. Um, I think a lot I mean, of people did. A lot of people I, saw themselves in the young folk who were getting it. completely screwed over by it. And I mean, there's not even any point asking, and how do we change that? Because it will take us five hours to even scratch the surface. <laughs> um more be, or sort of to circle back round to the oh, do you know what I was going to talk about green policy but I have to bring this up I'll let you explain it so that I can't even slightly distort or, or, or get it wrong talk me through the Piers Morgan debacle what happened there <laughs> yeah that's like if anything is going to go down as like my notable moment in politics so far, <laughs> it's it's this. Uh, I'm going to need to do something pretty spectacular to to top this one. So the the Tory party Twitter account uh, put something out about Winston Churchill uh, on one of one of his anniversaries um, about how he was Britain's greatest ever prime minister. Blah blah blah. The usual kind of flag wave. I think stuff. the greatest ever Britain they called him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I um, I quote tweeted it and said, you know, once again, for the people in the back, that kind of meme format, um, Winston Churchill was a white supremacist mass murderer. And upon hitting tweets, uh, half the country promptly lost their shit at yeah. uh, the very idea, n- not just that the idea that that may or may not be true, they, they weren't countenancing the fact that it was true, uh, but that I would even dare dare to say it um and don't get me wrong a lot of people supported it and that that's why it got attention so like thousands of people were retweeting it and favoriting it and, mm. and agreeing with it what that was doing was it was pushing it into the feeds of a lot of people who did not agree to it and eventually mm. it was getting into the uh to the attention of people like pierce morgan or uh, then foreign secretary of the uk jeremy hunt 
Um, <laughs> Jeremy and, Hunt got involved as well. Yeah, Fuck Jeremy yeah. Hunt got involved at one point. Um, so Jeremy Hunt replied to me, or he quote tweeted me saying, uh, you know, Winston Churchill wasn't quite uh, a white supremacist. Um, so I just replied to him with three Winston Churchill quotes that were about the supremacy of the white race. Um, I mean, it, it, Hunt was just angling for the, the leadership of the Tory party at that mm. point. Um, but basically, the, the tweet gathered a huge amount of momentum and actually got a lot of international attention. So, like, predictably, you have folk in the countries that suffered under the British Empire, like India. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a billion people in India. Quite a lot of them have quite large uh, Twitter followings. So quite a lot of people in India with very large Twitter followings were agreeing with me, and that was just increasing the reach of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of folk in Ireland were agreeing, uh, places like Kenya, etc. Um, it, it got all over the world. Unbelievably, Fox News actually uh, covered it, but <laughs> the Fox News coverage of it was fairer and more accurate than almost any British newspaper, wow. uh, which was weird. But what I ended up with was Piers Morgan just started attacking me. He wasn't replying to anything I was saying, but he just started attacking me on Twitter. Um, And then he challenged me to come on his show, which I thought, right, I can't, like, I I can't can't be bothered with this, but I also, I can't back off because it's going to make it look like I don't believe what I'm saying. I was just doing it for attention or whatever. Uh, So I agreed the next morning on Good Morning Britain at like quarter past seven in the morning or whatever uh, for 15 minutes of absolute nonsense where this guy just gets redder and redder and redder and angrier and angrier because he didn't have a fucking clue what he was talking about like this is an area of history that i know something about right i, I said so there's two parts to what i said that he's a white supremacist and a, a mass murderer right the, the white supremacy point winston churchill said the phrase whites are a superior race he said that in the context of talking about the enslavement of uh, black africans and the genocide of both native americans and aboriginal australians um, so he said whites are a superior race that is white supremacy like that that's just rearranging the same words like why is that even up for debate of course he was a white supremacist he said he was a white supremacist mass murderer point um, well that would be the fact that um, he deliberately had food diverted from Bengal during a famine. Four million people starved. He took food that had been produced in Bengal out of there during the famine, unleashed the black and tans on Ireland, this kind of like paramilitary pseudo-terrorist force who were supposed to be like a police force, uh, bombed uh, the Kurds in uh, what's now Iraq, built concentration camps in Kenya in the 50s. This is post-World War II. This is in the modern era. Winston Churchill's second term as prime minister built concentration camps in Kenya when the uh, Kenyans were fighting for their freedom from the British Empire. Like, this stuff is all documented, Mm. like thoroughly well documented. Um, But that's not the debate that Piers Morgan wanted to have. It's not the debate that a lot of the the right-wing press wanted to have. They were just going absolutely batshit um, because I was calling into question not just Churchill, but as a result, because British identity is so tied up in Churchill and the myth that's been built around him. Like Br- the British history, as it's kind of collectively told in our culture, is largely a myth. It's largely just bullshit. And because I was bringing all that into question, I was actually also bringing their personal identity into question because mm-hmm. their identity as a British person was based on this idea of history that was, in fact, a complete myth of which Winston Churchill plays a central role. Rather than talk about what he did or did not do, they would much rather just have this like hysterical screaming debate about how like I was like undeserving of basic rights because I had dared to insult this fine out uh, upstanding British man. Mm. They, they they couldn't talk about the history. They had no understanding of what actually did or did not occur. But more importantly than that, and it's much sadder than that, they had no interest 
in talking about the history at all. What all Piers Morgan wanted was like 15 minutes of car crash TV where like we talked about how um, he'd, uh, he'd called me a, a thick ginger turd on Twitter the night before. And his producer told me that morning, said, yes, that's, um, that's not language we're allowed to use on television. So if, if you wouldn't mind not repeating what Piers called you on Twitter... Um, and then, like, at one point he was telling me about how um, his brother who lives in France had dinner with a former um, British Army chief of staff. Like, like this Aye. is just nonsense. Like, this is just, like, self-aggrandizing bullshit from an attention seeker, which is what frustrates me. Like, the whole thing is now known as the Ross Greer Piers Morgan incident rather than the Winston Churchill incident, which is mm-hmm. what, it, what we should be talking about. Do you remember who the, this is kind of by the by, do you remember who the producer was? I can't at that, uh, not now, to be honest, because I, mean, I, I spoke to quite a few of them. Right, okay. Um, so I know a few yeah. people that worked in GMB. Um, oh, God, I don't even know where to start with it. I've got so many points. And on the whole, while I may not echo or, or, or support what they were saying, I tried to look at it and go, why are they getting so angry? Because a lot of this is kind of it's easily accessible history. I was like, why are they denying it so much? Or denying certain things so much? And then I thought, I, I kind of started to think, as you say, that is their identity. And a part of me is like, how can I be so impartial here? And how can I really see it from both sides? Or, or not even see it from both sides as if, oh yeah, I can find uh, logic and, and agreeability in both. But more, what is, if I'm in, if I'm in their shoes, how am I seeing the world? And, and that is a large part of the British identity, isn't it? That, Winston Churchill is, a, is an unfallible hero uh, and he was hilarious and the quote that's attributed to him when somebody said in the House of Parliament, Mr Churchill, you're drunk, and he said, yes, but when I go home, I'll be sober, but you, or when I wake up in the morning, I'll be sober, but you'll still be ugly. And it's like, oh, what a carrot, what a lad, 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 Winston. There's a lot of that whole thing about it and you're like, oh, I don't know, man, there's, there's a lot more to it. I also then was like, not that I'm comparing them to... Nelson Mandela, Mahatma Gandhi, or Che Guevara, but these are three people that are icons in history. They're they're literally deified. They're they're idolised. Um, you know, people get Che Guevara tattoos. Nelson Mandela is a hero to people around the world. And you're like, hold on a minute. They were fallible people. For example, Che Guevara was like horrendously homophobic. Yeah. Mahatma Gandhi, I may, be, I may be getting my wires crossed here, but I'm pretty sure his wife had an illness and he's like, no, 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 we won't be taking medicine. Um, God will be praying. And then she died and then Gandhi then gets the same illness and he's like, hey, oh, hey well, what was that medicine you were talking about again? And it's like, what the fuck? And also Gandhi had a lot of question marks around him and then Nelson Mandela did take part in terrorist you know, terrorist defences and, and, and attacks and whatever. And it doesn't then... Compl- well, the literal whitewashing of Mandela's history is fascinating. Aye. Like, and Nelson Mandela won freedom for black people in South Africa in part through the armed struggle. Aye. So we don't like to talk about that. Like, exactly. That, and that, makes, that makes white people, especially in the UK, super uncomfortable because you then like realise, actually, at the point he was doing that, the British government supported the apartheid white yeah, regime in South aye. Africa. And yet, like, a lot of people who are Tory MPs now were in the Tory student wing and had the Hang Mandela posters yeah, up in their bedroom I'm windows. I'm pretty sure Cameron and Osborne were involved in that. And I think Margaret Thatcher, a quote attributed to her, is that Mandela was a grubby little terrorist. The point I was then going to make was that to point out these things where people really got it wrong 
it doesn't completely um, sort of eradicate or whitewash anything good that they achieved. I suppose with the with the Winston Churchill one, there's there is a there's a longer rap sheet, um, and but I can again while I wouldn't share their perspective, I'm like they're, they're kind of under the I don't know that that sort of insular British identity, like you know we won the war, like yeah I remember back in the not like. Fucking mate, stop getting on about World War Two. You weren't even fucking alive. Your parents were barely alive. Stop getting on about it. Just yeah, stop. Like men stop in their late fifties who talk about it like they personally took. Uh, I know, like oh yeah, like you can't see anything is wrong with the world. Well, well, there was a world war. Like oh, hold, hold on a minute. Okay, so I can't complain about something that's happening here and now because seventy years ago a war took place. Like no, that isn't. It. That's not how it's going. Susanna Reid, she said that nobody's denying that every historical hero should be scrutinised and then they said that they thought it was sloganeering as opposed to a renewed and updated summary and evaluation do you I'm not trying to push you for an answer here but do you look back and think I wish I'd just put that across differently because it kind of gives them ammunition a wee bit to say you're just fucking like you're just putting out a blanket statement do you, do you know what I mean by that? Because they can weaponize that tweet and and go, well, look at that. That's just ridiculous. I don't particularly think it is fully ridiculous, but I could see why they would call it sloganeering. Yeah, in, in another interview that I did uh, on Politics Live, I think it was the deputy editor of the, the Spectator, the right-wing magazine, said it was the Miley Cyrusization of politics. <laughs> Whatever they thought they meant by that, I don't know. Um, yeah. But I think my answer to that was, well, I was 24 at the time. I said, well, I'm 24 and I tweet and communicate like a 24-year-old. Yes. Um, but the, and I didn't mean that as like a, a bad thing. Like, If I had communicated it differently, would it have got as much attention as it did? Well, no, probably not. Um, and as much as, don't get me wrong, that was like a personally horrendous experience for me. It, it resulted in a huge number of death threats. Uh, I had to send my staff home and, and, and close my office. I had Daily Mail journalists harassing my parents because the Daily Mail were bastards. Um, like that was all horrible, but like if it takes out the kind of like, what personally happened to me, if I had like gone with a much more like a, a milder wording, if I hadn't used any emojis and it hadn't got any attention, well, far fewer people would have even heard about it at all. And I'm not saying that I've single-handedly changed the country's view of Churchill. Clearly, I've not. Um, but I know from the massive, massive volume of correspondence that I got that a huge number of people learn a huge amount that they didn't know before um, about Churchill, about mm. the British Empire, about our history, about our recent history. We're not talking about stuff that's long gone. There are people alive today who were tortured on his orders. There are men in Kenya alive today who recently tried to, to take the British government to court because they were in those concentration camps mm. that he had set up. They're still alive. They're still here. You can speak to them. One. They suffered because of him. Um, and now more people in the UK know that because one of the most depressing things that was said to me in that whole episode was what Susanna Reid said towards the end of that interview, which said, I mean, Mr. Greer, your, your point of view here is just completely unique and isolated, isn't it? How, yeah, I disagree with how that. How insular and completely inward looking does your worldview have to be that you think what I'm saying is isolated here? Like, <laughs> India is a country that suffered immensely under Churchill and has a billion people in it. Our closest neighbour, Ireland, has quite a different view of Winston Churchill on the whole uh, than what people in the UK have. Kenya, again, people actually alive today who were in his concentration uh, camps and suffered as a, yeah. as a result of it. Like The idea that what I was saying was some 
fringe, unsubstantiated, and unpopular point of view globally is nonsense. The British point of view is the one that is like fringe and weird when viewed globally <laughs> because people in the rest of the world don't like Winston Churchill is not a key part of their sense of self and national identity yeah. uh, and all that. So yeah, like I I communicated it in a way that meant a huge number of people, in the end, millions of people, got a conversation about Churchill that wouldn't have happened otherwise. That conversation mm-hmm. went on for weeks after it. Uh, John McDonnell got uh, drawn in at some point. There's a couple of football commentators. I'm, it's really annoying me. I can't remember who now, but um, there's a, a couple of football commentators who I totally didn't expect ended up getting pulled in. Uh, they agreed with me, uh, funnily oh, enough, which wow. was nice. English um, commentators? Uh, yeah, but um, they, it was uh, people of colour uh, who ah. they, they're... Uh, there may be family connections and, and a different, a more rounded view of history. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's put it that way. Um, but the what meant the most to me about that whole episode was I run a, a youth club uh, from a church and uh, one of the mums of the, the kids from the youth club got in touch with me because I'm not going to lie, I was so anxious about going to my church the Sunday after because I didn't know how the people there would react to it. What I was really afraid of was the parents of my young people would think I was like no longer an appropriate leader for the, the youth group or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely none of that happened. Uh, I know fine well that some of them agreed with me. I'm sure some of them disagreed with me, but they all thought it was it was legitimate and fine. What meant the most to me was when one of the parents came and spoke to me and said her and her son had watched it on, they'd seen it on TV that morning and they didn't know anything about it. They were totally surprised by all the, the, the stuff that I was saying, um, but they thought it was really interesting. So they went away and Googled it. And now they've learned a lot more about it. This like mom yeah. and her fourteen-year-old son, who were totally stunned by the stuff I was saying about you know Churchill, Kenya concentration camps in the fifties. So they went away and they learned about it. And like that to me, that meant so much because she was just saying basically, like I, you know, thanks for letting us know about that. We, like that's part of our history. We had no idea any of it had taken place, and now we do. And now we understand the world a little bit better or a lot, little bit differently to what we did before. Um, and you know that it shows the weaknesses of our our culture and our education system that most people in the UK don't. Well, we we're not educated uh, on what the British Empire actually did. We're, we're mm-hmm. kind of brought up with this cultural myth uh, of of British superiority. I didn't transform the country's understanding of it, but there are a couple of million people out there who at least know a little bit more and have a more balanced view of history between the myth they were brought up with mm-hmm. and the reality than they did before. Um, and not going to lie, it sucked for me personally. The, yeah. the death threats and all that weren't fun, but it changed the conversation. Um, and it, that all started again last year when the Black Lives Matter stuff all kicked off. The video of my Piers Morgan debate started getting shared around um, a lot more. Um, and I, I was invited back to do a whole bunch of media bids, most of which I turned down, um, but I did some of them. And it's just helped that conversation move on another step. There's no, There's been no transformational single moment where public opinion just shifted, but it's clearly moving, and it, it's moving towards just understanding and accepting what actually happened. Mm-hmm. There is a very valid debate to be had. A, a couple of the debates that I did weren't with like shock jocks and idiots. They were with historians and academics, some of whom agreed with me and some of whom didn't. Um, And we had a really, really good substantial debate about who Churchill was and wasn't, how you assess him in historical context, etc. That's the kind of discussion that we should be having. Yeah, Um, I would agree. The problem is there's a lot of people who are just completely unprepared to have that because to even question, the, as you said, the infallibility of the man, 
brings into question their whole sense of British identity, their whole sense of who they are, of who this country is. And they're not they're not prepared, they're not willing to do that. Because yeah. again, one of the flaws of our culture and our education system is um, we don't teach people how to disagree well. We don't teach people how to debate and, and discuss well, um, which is why people see debate and discussion a lot of the time as, as an outright threat to be responded to with hostility and, and aggression. Mm. That's a really good point. Cognitive dissonance, obviously, is going to play a huge part in that, that refusal to accept the the, the notion. Of, or, uh, yeah, seeing seeing a challenge to your perception of history as a threat to your very existence and identity. I can understand from a human behavioural perspective why someone would react in such a way. With Piers Morgan, I might I, there might be a, a lot of sharp intake of breath here from people listening, but I quite like listening to Piers Morgan. Um, that's not to say that I agree with with everything that comes out of his mouth. It's not to say it doesn't piss me off. I would say that to his face because he plays to the gallery a lot. That's what he's done there. One oh, thing, that's totally what he was doing with me. Absolutely. He probably, I bet you would probably come away and go, yeah, it's probably, I don't like the way he's gone about it. I don't like the insinuation that British, because they see that as an insinuation or are you implying that Britishness in general as a concept is bad? Um, I think that was probably where he was coming from. He did. One thing that frustrated me, I may well be totally wrong, but he held up what he said was cabinet papers, which showed that Winston Churchill had written to the Canadian and Australian governments, uh, basically imploring them to to assist in the famine in Bengal. Bengal, however you say that. Um, first of all, I remember thinking, Mate, like you can't be using that as fucking impartial evidence. Like it's obviously anything that's released by any organisation is going to be propagandist to a point. But also, I was and pretty in that sure case it was. Uh, the only reason that that paper was released was uh, because photos had got out into the British press of kids starving. It was like nine months into the famine, ah, right, already okay. taken the food out. It, it was as exactly as you said. It was bullshit propaganda. My my, my understanding, and I may be mistaken was that he did write to, to those governments under duress and under pressure from the royal family who were like, here, if you don't do something, we are going to be removed as heads of state and we can't be having that, basically, in a nutshell. There'll be people that might contest that, but that was my understanding. So I remember thinking, yeah. you, like, you can't wave that paper and say, oh, well, this just totally shuts down that debate. Like, <laughs> what? Like, I mean, that is as good as, is as, good as nothing. Um, yeah, so that, it, it kind of frustrated me. Just the shouting and all that was... I mean, don't get me wrong, I can see why you riled him. Like, I can see why he was riled, because you were kind of laughing at him a bit, and you called him, I, you mentioned about calling him gammon or something, I remember thinking, oh no, like that's... Cause I'd never honey, s- honey glazed gammon, I think, was how I, I described I, him. And I just thought, there is no, 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 because I, I literally only saw it for the first time yesterday, and as I watched it, I thought, nah, there, there is no way that this is going to now go good, because they're just completely at, at, at odds with each other now. Um, but it, was, it was the hypocrisy of what he was saying as well, though. Like Piers Morgan was presenting himself as the defender of British values and British identity and British history. This is a guy who got sacked as the editor of a national newspaper because he put lies about British soldiers torturing people on the front page. And don't get me wrong, there are like recorded, documented instances of British soldiers doing that, uh, but not what he was alleging. Like he put lies about British soldiers on the front page of his newspaper. It arguably put British soldiers in Iraq in, in greater danger. Um, so the idea that he could stand up and be like the defender of of British national identity and British honour 
it's just bullshit. Like, this is a man who's thoroughly personally dishonoured, but he knew that what would get views and what would entertain people, exactly as you said, playing to the gallery, is if he presented it like that, that he was defending Britain and I was the enemy of Britain who needed to be humiliated and defeated. Mm -hmm. Piers would obviously contest that statement. I will point that out. Um, If anybody wants to watch it, you can go and find it. And it is, it's entertaining. It's um, because a few times I was going, oh, no, like just the whole time back and forward. Susanna Reid wasn't impressed. She wasn't really able to to sort of hide it, that sort of few raised eyebrows and stuff. But I don't think she was impressed with either of us. I don't think she, uh, clearly she was not agreeing with me. I don't think she was uh, impressed by Piers' conduct either. Mm. The the one guy that I almost felt sorry for was uh, the Tory MP that he brought on. Because uh, the idea was I was supposed to debate with this Tory MP who's like great-great-uncle was Churchill's best man at his Oh, wedding. yeah, yeah, so um, like, Which kind of t- tells you everything you need to know about the Tory party, to be honest. Yeah, um, but he brought him on, and then Piers got so angry with me so quickly, he forgot that guy was there. That guy got like two words in the whole time. <laughs> and I mean, what he said was, was nonsense, but he got like two words in the whole time because Piers just spent 15 minutes. And like 15 minutes is a really, really long time for a TV interview. They're usually three, four, five minutes at most. Ah, it was um, long. But clearly, clearly they thought it made for good TV. And as much as that's not what I was aiming for, again, like 15 minutes of TV in the morning where millions of people were watching. Like, it, it was an opportunity to have a discussion that almost never gets had. And I was really aware, like, I was going into that with, despite the fact the death threats and all that, like, I still, I've still got the privilege of being like a white guy in a position of, of power and, and, and privilege in society. Mm-hmm. I know how much more dangerous it is for people of colour, for women uh, to, to make statements like this. In fact, um, uh, uh, Ashley Carr from uh, Novara Media have made uh, pretty similar comments. Uh, and as a young woman of colour, I mean, she got far more serious death threats than than I did. Yeah. It was far, far more dangerous for her to do that. So, you know, if if I could use that position of like totally unearned privilege I've got just for having been born a white man, I used it to push that conversation on a little bit. Like, I, I hope it helped. I got a really nice email from uh, a, Bengali, a Bengali community association in my area who said, like, they they were just stunned and really, really happy that their history was being told. This uh-huh. ben- Bengali community in the UK who had just never heard what happened to their community within living memory. Like, they're still survivors of that famine. It's not like uh-huh. it happened that long ago. What actually happened to them was being talked about and, and who was responsible for it. It was being talked about on national TV. And that really meant something to them because they had never, in the, like, for most of their lives, never heard their community be represented like that, their truth, their their historical reality, they'd never actually heard it be talked about properly in the British mainstream. Mm-hmm. And that that was what meant the most to them, uh, the whole experience. So apologies for the wee interruption there, if there even was one, as I now have to go back and do the edit. Uh, technical difficulties, but we're, we're back at it. Um, I've got some, some party-specific questions for you. Um, I mean, first of all, I'm bored of talking about it, but it's the elephant in the room. It is permeates all existence, COVID. I'm so bored of saying that word. But the Green Party is very activist-based. Do you think the lockdown and the lack of face-to-face public engagement, plus health and economy's top of the agenda, has that hampered your momentum in any way? It's definitely not good for a, 
a party like ours that's based on grassroots activism that you can't actually go out, knock on doors and, and speak to people. Uh, I think there's a, there's a wider issue for the integrity of the election. The elections aren't just about, you know, being able to run polling day safely. Mm-hmm. Um, an election depends on weeks before that where the public can scrutinise and question candidates and find out what other parties believe. And this election is going to be totally different. So there's a big question there about that. It affects us more than other parties because if, if you are a party with a huge amount of money with millionaire backers, big business backers, they can just write you a cheque and you just flood the zone with digital ads, direct mm. mail, that kind of stuff. We can't do that. We'll fundraise as best we can from our members and our supporters and you know every five, ten quid will be put to very good use. But yeah, I mean that that has a big effect. That being said, like the Greens are polling really well. At the moment we're polling better than we ever have done um, before. We're the only opposition party who are consistently looking like we'll make gains at this election. Mm-hmm. I think that's a reflection of the fact that people people like what they've seen from us during the pandemic, that we've not just focused on attacking the government for the sake of it, um, nor have we just gone along with them for the sake of national unity. We've taken this really considered approach and proven that, you know, that stereotype that the Greens are only a party of, of the environment. Well, no, I mean, if you look at who's really led on issues around education during the pandemic, it's it was us. Like, it, we, we led on getting the, the SQA exam debacle fixed. Uh, the recent announcement that there's going to be regular testing available for school staff and, and for uh, senior pupils, that came about as a result of my safe school proposals. I put those to Parliament in November. They were agreed twice by Parliament. The government's starting to introduce them now. They forty-five million for additional staff. That was off the back of again another part of my my safe school proposals on issues like regular testing of care and uh, health staff. We were the first ones to to call for that. We've pushed for it uh, throughout the the pandemic. We're finally getting to the point now where what we proposed in April is is kind of close to what the government are actually delivering on on testing so as much as obviously none of us wanted to be in this situation i think Mm. it's a huge problem that um we've got this massive climate crisis facing us and we're we're really struggling to find the space to to talk about it um from a kind of purely party point of view um we are pulling on the up uh fundraising is is going pretty well for us all things considered Our, our membership is growing I feel a bit vindicated by that. I can't take anything for granted and the election's still you know, 90-ish days away yet, but folks seem to like what they've seen from us, um, which is good because um, what we usually do very well in election campaigns, which is go out with our members and volunteers door-to-door and actually talk to people and engage with them, we can't do that. So it's a good thing that people have at least noticed what our MSPs have been doing for them in relation to, to the government's hand on the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Obviously, coming up is it is it going to be the tail end of this year, November? Then the climate change conference COP twenty six coming to Glasgow. We will see world leaders descend on on Glasgow on the Clyde side, which I find mental. I thought it would be Joe Biden, but would he be sending Al Gore? Do you know? Uh, I think it, uh, John Kerry will certainly be there. So he's Joe Biden's uh, kind of international climate czar. Uh, I uh, thought yeah, I was the... getting mixed up with Al Gore and John Kerry. Sorry, I. Al Gore will probably be there as well, actually. I, I don't think he'll be there on behalf of the US government. He'll probably be there on behalf of uh, either the UN themselves mm-hmm. or his organisation. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, I don't think we've quite absorbed it here yet. Now, COP26 is going to be the single biggest conference the UK has ever held. Like, for a couple of weeks, it will transform Glasgow. We're talking about tens of thousands of extra people. Yeah. Almost every world leader, Joe Biden himself, uh, might be there. Certainly most 
heads of state from across Europe and all other countries will, will be How there. nuts is that that they might just be cutting about Finiston? Or yeah. like, or tra- <laughs> like trades, like you've been tracing, like, is that fucking Angela Merkel coming out of Nandos or like Pepe's? Like, how funny is that? I, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think, like, uh, I think Joe Biden's probably a pot still man. I think he'd, he'd been the center <laughs> for trying out the whiskey in the pot still. That feels like his kind of vibe. Uh, um, but, I mean, not only will it just be, like, massive, and everyone who you've ever heard of in global politics... Massive security there, detail. Um, it's also the most important conference in world history. Like, this is our last chance to get a binding global agreement to actually tackle this crisis. Like, th- this is massive the stakes are so so high and um, unfortunately because of the change in the u.s election result and, and a couple of other elections across the world we might be heading towards a good place we, we mm. might get a pretty good international agreement that in and of itself won't save the world from from climate catastrophe but it will at least make it possible like the stakes for cop 26 are massive like what happens mm. in glasgow in november will go down in world history it's a really really big deal I've only just got my head around how massive it is. It's incredible. And to think that it might be spoken about in history and Glasgow be getting mentioned. Although, I wish somebody would have a word with Joe Biden and tell him it's no Glasgow, it's Glasgow, mate. Still calling it uh, yeah, Glasgow. I think we, we're going to be enduring absolutely <laughs> months of that. We're going to Glasgow for the CLP. Mate, stop calling it that. That isn't what it's called. Um, in relation to uh, to climate and renewable energy and all that kind of thing there's a question that a pal of mine put to me and he works in this industry and he wants me to ask you this specifically do you think that england are desperate to hold on to scotland as a result of scotland's hydropower and both onshore and offshore renewable wind farms without which the national grid in england would potentially face rolling blackouts the Energy dimensions are really one of the most interesting bits of, of the debate on independence. One of the reasons that I think Scotland could make independence such a massive success is we are about 1% of Europe's population, but we've got about 25% of its wind, wave and tidal renewable energy generation capacity. So because we are this like coastal nation in a bit of the world where you get a lot of wind, a lot of waves... Um, you, you can generate massive, massive amounts of energy here. So we we are capable of generating way, way more than what we actually need in Scotland mm-hmm. um, and purely from, from renewables. So, yeah, I mean, I'm sure the UK government are acutely aware of the fact that if Scotland were independent, uh, a lot of their domestic energy needs would become reliant on, on another country. Um, I think that the UK government should be investing way more in renewables across England and Wales, particularly micro-renewables, making local towns and communities much more self-sustaining. But there's also a huge opportunity for us there. I mean, for a long time, uh, proposals have been built up and built up and very slowly progressed towards a European supergrid that would connect eventually in its final phase everything from uh, Iceland and the Nordic countries to the north coast of Africa, places like Morocco and everything, all of mainland Europe and between ourselves, Ireland, etc., What that would allow countries like Scotland to do is to immediately and directly export that energy. So generate way, way, way more than we need and export it to other countries who actually need it. Um, Now, that is a huge economic opportunity for us. We can create so, so many jobs doing that. Um, And we will be helping not just our own country reduce its emissions, but we can help our whole continent and potentially wider if Mm. if you're going as far as North Africa, etc. We can 
collectively help our, our friends in other countries phase out fossil fuels as well because we will be generating all this clean energy from wind, wave and tidal. Um, and all, all we need is the, the grid infrastructure to just export it to these other countries. So I'm sure the UK government are aware of that. I, I, I would really like to think they don't have anything to worry about. That it would absolutely not be in Scotland's interest. It would be pointless and antagonistic if we were to not export energy yeah. to the UK once we become independent. It's not in our economic interests. It's not being a good neighbour. Like it's not in the environment's interest. Why? Why would we do it? Um, but yeah, it's probably one of the things they think of is that at, at the moment, like Scotland's ability to generate far more than what it needs in energy way outstrips um, England, and they've mm-hmm. not been planning properly for energy generation in England for, for a very long time. Like, oh, you know, nonsense like uh, Hinkley Point nuclear power station wasting billions and billions on nuclear energy projects that, frankly, a lot of them just are never actually going to see the light of day. And you, mm. you shouldn't want them to. We don't need nuclear power. I'll be interested to see if there is, if the sort of renewable energy angle is a focal point of the SNP's push for independence. Previously, it was oil-based wealth um, I wonder if that will be a, a different angle this time around. Well, the SNP are still trying to ride both horses on that one of saying, you know, Scotland can be a world leader in renewables and talking about maximum extraction of, of North Sea oil and gas past 2050. Mm. And it's like, well, what's the point in the renewables if you're still burning the oil and gas? Like, the renewables don't negate it. If you're, if you're burning the oil and gas, the climate crisis is still getting worse and worse and worse. The point of the renewables is to replace the oil and gas. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think for, for electoral reasons for them, to keep everyone happy, they're saying, oh, no, we'll do both. Well, mm-hmm. there's no point in doing both. I mean, honestly, I'm saying as a Green, there, there's no point in uh, m- this massive push to expand renewables if you're not phasing out fossil fuels. Like, this is a replacement. It's a transition from one to the other. You're not adding them because you're not achieving what you want to achieve. What's the point in clean energy if you've also got the dirty energy going on at the same time? And that's... Like that's what frustrates me about the, the SNP's approach to this is it, it doesn't look like it's focused on the science or focused on really tackling this this massive crisis. It's about pleasing as many different groups of people as they possibly can ahead of elections or, or mm. a referendum. I heard, I don't know if it, it might be inaccurate, but I, I trust the source. I heard that Nicola Sturgeon was offered a, a key role working within the UN as part of a climate change um I don't know if it was a committee or it should be like a leader or something like that. I don't know if that's public knowledge. Um, very interesting. Pretty strong, pretty strong rumours that Nick had been offered a job at the UN at one point. Yeah. Good, good, because I was panicking that the person that told me that was going to pull me up because hardly anybody knew and then it would be very obviously linked back to them. Okay, yeah, I, I think that is, um, that is a very fascinating uh, and encouraging from the perspective that of the, the UN itself is taking Scotland very seriously as a you know, as a country, and taking Nicola Sturgeon very seriously as a leader, um, it kind of, I think, puts paid a wee bit to the the suggestion that we would be just a, a minuscule, um, ineffective bystander in the global stage um, if we were to be an independent nation. Obviously, a, a conversation for another time, but um, yeah. It's a kind of mixed bag, that one, that the UN, because, I mean, on the one hand, like, you could, Ireland on the UN Security Council like small countries can play a massive and important role, yeah. but also like playing it with a, you don't need to be a superpower throwing your weight around and forcing people to do what you want. Ireland's approach to being on the Security Council will be about cooperation. That's exactly mm-hmm. what, what Scotland can do. The, the problem it creates for our domestic politics is um, if the UN is using, and I'm sure it will, 
using the Scottish Government as an example ahead of COP to other countries which are doing a lot less to tackle the climate crisis and saying, look, you could be doing as much as Scotland is doing. Mm-hmm. That's a big problem for those of us in Scotland who need the Scottish Government to be doing more because they'll just turn around and say, you know, how can we possibly do more? The the UN, like the, even they're saying that Scotland is a world leader on, on climate. Like, yeah, like being the slowest snail is is not good enough on, on something like this. So it's kind of a double-edged. Like I, as someone who wants independence, think it's great that like these big international bodies take Scotland seriously already. That's fantastic. Uh, at the same time, if it allows the Scottish government to kind of cover over what is it, at best a very mixed or quite weak record on, on areas like climate and the environment, that's that's where it gets really hard for us because the, the Scottish government's world-leading climate targets still only give us a 50-50 chance of stopping uh, global warming at the limits agreed in the, the Paris Agreement. And morally, I don't think 50-50 is good enough. Like, we shouldn't be flipping a coin on something that will be literally catastrophic for our species. Like, we, mm. we need to be doing much more than that. Well, it's good that we've got a cooperative um, a cooperative opposition such as the Greens to, to keep pulling in the same direction, but I don't know, give a nudge, light the fire beneath them. Um, I... I think it's it's very important to have that that opposition and that challenge. Um, as we kind of round up, I suppose elections are coming up. Is there anything that you would like to to get across to people listening, people in your constituency who maybe who might be swaying, maybe have not voted for you before, maybe they're thinking, "What should I give you my vote again?" What's your message to them? I want to be judged. I want the the Greens to be judged on what we've achieved over the last few years, as well as the vision that we've got. I think a lot of people know that the Greens have got this really positive vision for the future. We we want a Scotland that is fairer. We want to protect people and planet. We've got a plan to create a lot of jobs to uh, to tackle the climate crisis, etc. But over the last five years, we've already been achieving quite a bit of that. We, you know, we elected six MSPs at the last election, and with that, we have. Uh, we saved Loch Lomond from uh, an aggressive, totally inappropriate Flamingoland development. We're delivering free bus travel for under-19s. That'll come in later on this year. We rewrote the income tax system in Scotland. So the richest people pay a bit more in income tax now, and those on the lowest incomes pay a little bit less because of the Greens. We have saved uh, mountain hares from unregulated slaughter. You know, these big shooting estates, the, the landed gentry who kill the mountain hares so that they can clear the land to kill other stuff for fun. Uh, we're the ones putting a, a stop to that. Uh, we reversed the SQA's tobacco with exams. We just secured 45 million for schools. We just secured testing for school staff and for senior pupils. Like We have spent the last five years relentlessly trying to achieve as much as we possibly can for our constituents. And if people like what we have achieved, Imagine what we could achieve if it's 12 MSPs at the next election rather than than six. Um, we've got a really positive vision for the future. We are excited to play our part in Scotland achieving independence. We're absolutely committed to, to that. Uh, but for the first time, we're going into an election with a, a record to defend. And it's mm. a record that I'm really proud of. And, and I'd encourage people to, to have a look at it. And if they like the sounds of it, you know, to, to get involved, to sign up to be a supporter of the party or to, to join or to, to donate if they feel really motivated. That's fantastic because we're a movement. Um, I've always believed that for every one foot you've got in Parliament, you need a thousand others out on the, the street. Uh, there are other parties who will just have millionaires cut checks for them, who have support of big business, of, of conservative media outlets. Uh, we don't have that. We, we require on grassroots support, on a movement of people who share, share our values uh, or whose values we share. If people like the sound of what I've been saying, like you know, get involved because 
that's how we achieve change together. All the best, all the most lasting change that's ever been achieved has been achieved by movements of people coming together. You know, power, power is not given by those that have it. You have to take it from them. Uh, you have to force the kind of change that you want to see in the world. Mm. I think we've been doing not a bad job at that. Um, I'd love to see how much more power uh, we could pull away from vested interests, how much more change we could achieve if there were even more of us in the next parliament. Yeah, Podrick Pierce said, beware of the risen people who shall take what you would not give. I like the sound of that. I like the sound of that. You might have... You may well have gained a voter in me. Um, time, time will tell when we, when, when we get to the polls. What is it? Is it? Do you think it will go ahead as, it, as is planned, or do you think it will be delayed? At the moment, I think it will go ahead. Uh, I actually think delaying it would be in everyone's best interest. I think it'd be in the best interest of having a, a good democratic debate if we did it in September rather than in, in May. Uh, yeah. But at the moment, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking it's going ahead in May. Interesting. Well, I'll be at the polls. Make sure you are as well. Um, I'm not telling you what to do, but I'm telling you what to do. Make your vote heard and make it count. I think there's some staggering statistic that showed that if even a quarter of the people who didn't take part in the last general election had voted, then it would have been a potentially monumental difference. So you can't complain about not liking the outcome or who's representing you if you don't get involved. Um, I suppose the very final thing, how do we do things? Just like you said, we communi- you communicated at the time as a 24-year-old through Twitter, which is how a lot of people would probably like to reach you. Um, What's your Twitter username for anybody who wants to, to have a wee swatch? So it's uh, Ross underscore Greer on Twitter. I think it's just uh, at Ross Greer on Instagram. Magic. Well, Ross, thanks very much, mate, for your time. I've really thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this, um, especially the, the, the Churchill part of that was interesting. Uh, and, and best of luck, mate, for the, the upcoming election for you and, and the party. Brilliant, thanks for having me on, Sean. My pleasure, and thank you for listening. We'll be back again with another episode of Blethered soon. Cheers. Blethered was written, recorded and produced by Sean McDonald in association with The Big Light. Music and post-production by Brian McAlpine. And for more information, go to thebiglight.com. If you like this podcast, please check out all our other series, including Talk Media. You could start a fight in an empty house. Talking Derry Girls, Brave Your Day, The Tartan Noir Show, Double Scotch, Great Scott, Trust Me I'm a Leader, Unearthed, A Sonic Hug and Old School. All on The Big Light, Scotland's podcast network. From the Big Light Studio.